On this week's episode of Slashers, the boys are talking about American Psycho. We have to return some videotape. Be sure to stay tuned until the end of the episode for a fresh track from our old pals, Bone Church. No introduction necessary. Don't like that one either. Monsters are real, but the entire movie's in Patrick Bateman's imagination? You know what? I'm over it. This is Slashers, a podcast about movies and more for those who love horror. My name is Jake, and with me, as almost always, is my esteemed colleague, co-host, and cohort, the Jimothy Jim Bob Majimbo Jimmy, Jimmy the Beep Bop Boo. Give me the gym, boys, and feed my soul. I want to have a gym turn rock and roll and drift away. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know what happened. I blacked out. What happened? I don't know, but I like it. Yeah, we actually had one of our favorite Patreon patrons, Matt Russell, was like, I would listen to an entire episode of you just singing taglines to movies. So here's my challenge to all of you fuck boys. You send me a list of just taglines and I will just do an entire bonus episode of me singing it improv. The most impressive thing. (laughs) The most impressive thing I've ever seen in my life was when Elton John was on Inside the Actors Studio and he just took some kid's journal, sat down at a piano and just started playing the ragtime piano singing a song that never existed. I can do that. I I am the Elton John of horror movie podcasting, wouldn't you agree? Oh, totally. Dude, if I could have that kind of fashion though, girl, get you some. <laughs> How you been, Jim? I'm good. Now, this was your first time watching American Psycho, am I right? Yeah. What did you think? I enjoyed it. I have some major problems with it, but I still enjoyed it. Now, here's my big question. How would you have felt watching this? And obviously, you can't necessarily accurately predict this, but if you had seen this in your 20s as opposed to your 30s. (laughs) I don't know. It was written by a guy in his 20s. It was the characters in his 20s. And I think that, you know, I saw it in my teens, but I probably watched it more in my 20s than my teens. And I think that shaped me liking it. But what do you think? I could see that. Uh, I, I, probably I'm more critical of stuff now. So Yeah, I am very cranky when things waste my time. Right. I have like no patience at all. Like I've had a lot of flack online because I just didn't like Parasite. People are like, what do you mean? You must be racist. I'm like, I'm not racist. I just have other shit I can do. <laughs> like as a parent, as a father, as a husband, as a businessman, as a podcaster, I have so much time in the day. And I just didn't see it. the only thing that happens in that movie that I liked is that some broad gets super kicked down a flight of stairs. Other than that, it's a boring movie. Quote me on it. My point is, in watching a movie like this, I had a lot less patience this time around, especially having read the book this time, because I was like, I always it always bothered me that there's like no plot at all. And it's like way worse now. Especially because the book has less plot than the movie. We'll get into that for sure. And it's not very tight. Even at 140 minutes, it's not tight at all. Yeah, it's very loose. Probably because no plot. Yeah, it's just rambling. It's weird. If you cut each of these scenes, you could see it being like a YouTube vignette to lead to a movie where there is a plot. 
Yeah. You know, these like little microcosm scenes, like like just the business card scene, just the three-way sex scene, just the scene with him and the homeless man in the alley. If you put those as little vignettes as like a commercial for a big movie where it's like, oh, Patrick Bateman becomes a father. You know what I mean? Like that could be interesting. <laughs> Which funny enough, FX almost did a sequel TV series where it would be Patrick Bateman in his 50s. Sounds terrible. Mm. It's in what's called, quote, developmental hell. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good... Did you mean that delivery? Is that like a pun with Jesus? No. Oh, well, good. All right. So shall I get into some of the trivia for this one? Let's do it. Now, I'm going to start with my impressions of the book. And what's very interesting reading it now, Patrick Bateman, and it's alluded to a couple times in the movie, he's obsessed with Donald Trump. He reads his book. He sees him everywhere. He wants to be invited to his parties. It's very referential to Donald Trump. If you read this book now and you didn't know that it came out in 1991, you would be like, you're really hammering it over the head a little hard. Right. Like with the whole trying to be relevant. It's just so crazy to think that when this was written in 1991, Trump was literally a like the glowing beacon for the shitty yuppie scumbag. And now he's the president. <laughs> I'm not getting political. I'm just saying it's so he's weird. still the glowing beacon for the shitty yuppies. Oh, Jim went there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, in the book, he lives in the same building as Tom Cruise. And there's a super cute scene where he deliberately gets the name of cocktail wrong, calling the movie bartender. And Tom Cruise corrects him. I just love the idea. Like that's probably like my favorite part of the book. It was just because it was so entertaining to imagine Tom Cruise losing his fucking mind <laughs> with thetans or whatever the fuck Scientology is going on in the background. He's like, by the name of all that is holy in L. Ron Hubbard's basement, I will smite thee for not getting the name of my movie right. Was he into that back then, or was that more maybe just gay sex and of cocaine a, of a recent thing? Yeah, who knows? I haven't watched enough of those. So here's an interesting one. In the book, he's 26. In the movie, he's 27. To us, no big deal. It's just a year. To Patrick Bateman and his fragile psyche, that's enough to kill a man. <laughs> Probably the best vignette or like little short story element. When he leaves the scene with the dry cleaner in the book, he sees this girl. She's sitting there. She's got her cup out. He goes, he puts a dollar in the cup. This is the first time he's charitable at all, but he's thinking like awful things, right? And then he realizes he put his dollar in a girl's coffee and she's an NYU student. And that was probably my favorite part of the whole book. <laughs> For his, like I said, like fragile male ego kind of thing, that's enough to like have him have a conniption fit. And that's one of the things that the movie does really well is show the ramifications of shame that the book doesn't really do very well at all. And I'm not, this is not just going to be Jake Bash's the book, but I, I mean, I'll be honest, I wasn't a huge fan of it. It felt long and rambling. It was perverse in ways that I just didn't find that entertaining. Like on screen, you can relay over the top nonsensical gore. Like look at Dead Alive. It's one of my all time favorite movies. There's like gallons and buckets of blood and I think it's fucking hysterical. The kind of stuff they're talking about in this, I was like, it, it didn't feel funny. It just felt exhausting where I was like, I just don't fucking care. Like, stop talking about this woman's asshole and nail guns and, and you know, biting off nipples. It was just weird. It's excess, excessive. Yeah, but like I heard multiple people. The publisher in a documentary I watched said that he fell out of his chair laughing. Christian Bale said it was hilarious. Like I said, the scene with the coffee is the only time I laughed in the whole book. So I could see it being funny 
if there was like some kind of button or punchline, it was just exhausting. Everything in the book is exhausting. Like, for instance, for your birthday, you got a new shirt, pants, shoes. You just relayed that to me. This is how every scene would be. I sit down at the podcasting table across from Jim. Jim is wearing an Ocean Pacific shirt, Levi 5'11s, and Goodfellow shoes. I myself am not wearing shoes. I'm wearing some blah blah and blah blah blah. Every scene, every person who's like, it's exhausting. <laughs> I don't care. But that's the point. And I think that that's one of the things that Brian and I kind of differed on. I think that the book is effective in that you don't like it. You know what I mean? It makes you uncomfortable. It makes you distressed. And in doing so, it's an effective suspense thriller horror movie because it's distressing in its own way. Okay. That makes sense. Maybe I'm giving it more credit than it deserves. In the book, he rapes a girl with a can of hairspray. He reads an article about birds with rat heads and tails, which uh, distracted me because for the next five pages, all I could think about was Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which was <laughs> nice. He thinks to himself that he's happy he doesn't go to hockey games, so fuck, fuck him. him. He refers to AR-15s as the most expensive of guns, but worth every penny. And I was like, holy shit, we still talk about all this stuff, unironically, <laughs> 30 years later. You meet his brother in the book. Not very interesting. Don't give a shit. In the book, Christy doesn't get the cool chainsaw dropped on her. She just gets tortured to death with jumper cables and lit with matches and mangled with pliers, you know, like you do. There's a scene where he stabs a kid in the fucking throat at a zoo and then pretends to be a doctor acting like he's helping the kid as he just watches him die. There's a scene, and this is the scene that blurs the line a lot. And so we'll get into all, there's a lot of analysis with the author. He said multiple times that while he was writing the book, he didn't know if Patrick was actually doing this stuff or imagined. There's one scene that really blurs the line more than any. Towards the end of the book, he's in a cab, and this guy's like, hey, you killed Sully. And he pulls him over to the docks, and he basically robs him but leaves him alive. So you don't know if it's actually revenge or if it's like a con. Like that's his way of heisting Patrick. Because Patrick did kill a cab driver, but he doesn't know what his name was. And it was over a year ago, I think. So that's like the one thing that kind of blurs it more than anything else. And it's kind of odd that that didn't make it in the movie considering how cheap it would be to film. He has some really bizarre hallucinations throughout. He sees a Cheerio on a talk show that's talking. There's a park bench that follows him around. He says that he finds a bone in his dove bar. He has one scene where he gets manic and he starts like shoving canned meat in his face and running around. He tricks Evelyn into eating a chocolate covered urinal cake. Yeah, he has it delivered to the table and she takes two bites of it. And it's just odd. Seems like he, the book compared to the movie, he went way more just weird crazy stuff yeah instead of just this like i don't want to say gradual descent psychosis but <laughs> to an extent though yeah i think that's a fair you know. i think there is a gradual extent in the movie because you can see how each scene ties to the next scene right. but he has drastically varying levels of psychosis in the book where one scene you know, it's almost just like a guy who's got a tick versus the next scene. Like I said, he's running down the street, blathering and spitting meat on people. Right. <laughs> but again, can you have a real narrative for true psychosis? It's it's very convenient that you would have a ramping up because what is, what is a psychotic person? Somebody who's flippant and all of these other things. So the fact that it is inconsistent is unnerving and arguably effective while not pleasurable. Did you know that there was a musical that debuted at the Almeida Theater in London in December of 2013? No. 
Did you know that the sequel, American Psycho 2, that starred Mia Kunis, she actually has come out multiple times since then and denounced it and been like, nope, we're wrong. Like she said, when somebody was talking about making a third installment, that you should do a petition about it. And she claims that when she was shooting the movie, it was originally something completely different. And then they tweaked it and re-edited it, and they had her do reshoots to make it American Psycho 2. The only reference to Patrick Bateman is in the very beginning. Nothing else. That's weird. Because So the, the, the studio that has the rights to it just decided to do it? Nope. Basically, an author just doesn't have any say because he, he sold his rights probably. but It's the name. That sucks. Crazy, right? The whole book, the original source material, was denounced by Gloria Steinem. Did you know that's Christian Bale's stepmom? Ooh. Yeah, she's a female rights activist, and a lot of people claim that Bale had took the role to be like, fuck you, stepmom, <laughs> but that's kind of been debunked. Season one of Dexter, Dexter Morgan uses the name Patrick Bateman when he's getting his horse tranquilizers. That's always fun. Did you know that there is an album by the Misfits when they were fronted by Michael Graves called American Psycho? No, I did not. Until researching this, I never realized that that record predates this movie by several years, and it was actually based on the book. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the Michael Graves era Misfits, I am a big fan. I vastly prefer Famous Monsters. Fight me. Looking at the names of these... The songs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, these, this is actually a, a lyric. Oh, is that a lyric? Oh, yeah. okay. So he says, Inside a Wall Street mine, a psycho lurks, lines of cocaine cut in hell, obsessive hands gently grab your neck, compulsively you die, I hate people, whoa, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, struggling to breathe. So yeah, you could see it's very much based on it. What's funny is originally there's allegations that the title of that whole album was going to be Dead King's Rise, which is another song off of it. But that became a B-side, and as such, American Psycho. <laughs> Weird, right? And with that, I'm basically out of trivia, and everything else is about the construction of the film. So you want to get into some stab statistics? Let's do it. Shot on a budget of $7 million, it grossed a whopping $34.3 million. Debuted at Sundance on January 21st, 2000, and was released in U.S. theaters April 14th, 2000. Now, we talked about this on our recent Slammers episode. Jim, what movie came out the week before this? Beep, boop, boop. I literally forgot already. What? Okay, what if I said Jimmy King? Does that remind you? Oh, Ready Trumbull. Yes. So, of course, I think instead of seeing this movie in theaters, I saw Ready to Rumble twice. But you have to keep in mind, two weeks after this movie came out, you had the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. The next <laughs> month, you had Mission Impossible 2 and Gladiator. The next month, you had oh, wow. Big Mama's House. In May, you had Ethan Hawke's version of Hamlet, which if you juxtapose these two movies, you could have like the perfect movie. But let's talk about horror movies in the year 2000, right? Supernova, Final Destination, What Lies Beneath, Hollow Man, The Cell, Urban Legends, Shadow of the Vampire, Ginger Snap, Scream 3, Blair Witch 2. This movie is so stylized and unique compared to all those. It's no wonder it's the most legendary out of all of them. Maybe Shadow of the Vampire for me. And The, 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 the Cell, those three I think have aged the best. Everything else I don't think has done so well. The runtime, 101 minutes. It seems like you and I both kind of agree. You could cut some fat out of it. Oh, a lot. Yeah, especially with modern visual medium being so into montage and, you know, compressed short story talk. I don't need to see him lure the prostitutes and do it and then do it a second time in the same almost exact way. Right. You can kind of have a flashback, things like that. Now, 
this becomes three weeks in a row that we are talking about David Cronenberg on this uh, show <laughs> because he did The Fly, he did Videodrome, and he almost did this movie. He was attached to it for a long time, and he had Brett Easton Ellis do a draft of the screenplay from his own work. But Cronenberg was like, hey, all that stuff in the nightclubs is super not interesting. Also, I don't give a fuck about your rampant violence. And then it just never worked. It's the entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was very odd. So in Ellis's work, the whole thing ended with a, like an elaborate like musical where it was B- Barry Manilow's song Daybreak at a, on the top of the World Trade Center. Weird, right? And basically he says, quote, I'm glad it wasn't shot, but that kind of shows you where I was writing the script. I was bored with the material. You got to keep in mind, he wrote the original book over three years, and then this happens almost a decade later. You'd imagine that you're just sick of Patrick Bateman. But he doesn't end up doing the script. A guy named Norman Snyder comes in and does another draft. That doesn't work. And so then finally, you get Guinevere Turner and Mary Heron collaborate, and they put out the one that you get. We'll get into some of the changes they made, but by and large, everything is, I think, much better, much more concise. And even Ellis said on multiple interviews that I saw one, like specifically it was a round table with the director, with Bale and with the author. And he was like, no, it's, it's a great movie. Like it's very good. And he kind of, he even talked about them filtering some of his material and kind of narrowing it because it's so much broader and more ambling as a book. And, uh, Mary Heron. So the director, she cast Bale. Yes. So that's pretty good. The best thing about the movie for me is his acting. Yeah. So originally she gets presented the film in 1996 and her like legitimate response was, how do you make a film out of this? There isn't a real obvious film adaptation. And so she was all about Bale, like you said, so much so that the studio first they come to her, they almost like quintupled. No, how much more would that be? They almost multiplied it by a factor of six the budget of this film so they could give Leonardo DiCaprio 21 million bucks to play (laughs) Patrick Bateman. And that fool goes off and does The Beach, which is a fine movie, but it's no American Psycho. There were tons of other people who were talked about. I very rarely like to get into the rumor mill as far as production goes, but at one point, Scorsese was in talks to do it. Ewan McGregor was offered the role and turned it down at the recommendations of Bale. Ed Norton was also considered for the role. So it's just so crazy to think about. It could have been a different, completely different movie. Well, it's weird, too, because there was also different directors that were recommended. So like I said, you had Scorsese, you had Mark Walder, you had Danny Boyle, you had Oliver Stone, all these names thrown out. So not only would those directors have made the film different, but each director correlating with each actor would have been a vastly different movie. Right. Personally, I think this is the best one. I, I very often refer to Paul Verhoeven on this show. I, it's pretty clear I'm a big fanboy. I love like the vignette and the irreverent kind of reflection of the shittiness of pop culture. He, I think, would have made this movie perfect for me because I think that it needs to be a little bit more on the nose, the mm-hmm. one-to-one comparison as far as like, this is consumerism. This is this weird schlock and that's one thing i really like in the book is his obsession with the patty winter show which is basically like a you know a ricky lake type show mm-hmm. where like jerry springer where they have like people who are like uh survived being raped and then they have morbidly obese people and they have midgets and like each episode is like more you know obscene and grotesque and over the top and it's more salacious and I think that's probably the best glimpse you get at like a pop culture because the pop culture is what appeals to me. I don't give a fuck about Wall Street. Right. 
I can't relate to it at all, but I know I've certainly seen enough media from the 80s to be able to be like, oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I found really interesting is Ellis said that he was really uninterested by the whole violent element of it, even though the violence is frankly kind of bizarre in the book. There are multiple different indications of his writing process. Some of it is that it was basically he wrote just this kind of innocuous novel and then kind of added to it when it came to the violence after the fact, kind of when he had a more honed idea of Patrick Bateman, which is weird. But he said that in his perspective, it, the book is four pages of violence, 396 pages of satire. Quote, it was never really about violence. Uh, no, not true. <laughs> like, not true for the book? Yeah, the book, I mean, it's way more than four pages, I'll tell you that. But it's also like the satire, I think, kind of gets lost in it in a way. All That's right. why I reference Paul Verhoeven, because I'm going to reference him anytime there's anything that's tongue in cheek. It's basically him or nobody. <laughs> So his first film adaptation was from a book he did was Less Than Zero. And then after this movie, there was another one for Rules of Attraction. And what I thought was really interesting, I started reading Less Than Zero. The first quote is, people are afraid to merge on freeways in Los Angeles, which sounds bland enough. But really, the book deals with interpersonal relationships and disconnectedness and the characters, the sense of ennui, if you will, where he just nonplussed by everything. It's similar to Patrick Bateman in a lot of ways. In the documentary, This Is Not an Exit, the fictional world of Brett Easton Ellis that was released in 1999 before this movie came out, that's probably the most head-up-your-own-ass, self-indulgent thing I've ever fucking seen, where he like shot little vignettes from his books to be in this, and he, he's talking about it. He seems to be so normal now, because I've listened to interviews of him in his 50s versus then, and I have to reconcile the fact he's a kid in his 20s who's a fucking rock star. And we don't have rock star authors anymore. So he, no, we don't. He, nobody is as unique as he and his like little Brat Pack fan. I, I was going to ask how not knowing anything about him. Yeah. And then being like, okay, he wrote this. Like, how fucked up is this guy? And then like. <laughs> well, so in the documentary, he even sits down with his mom and basically has her like go to bat for him. Like, hey, I'm not crazy. Right. And she's like, no, you're not crazy. And she seems to be like imply that she gets it. He went to private school and he actually talked about like his sense of alienation growing there because kids in private schools are so much more fucked up than public schools because they can afford to be. Uh, his dad was abusive and he initially Ellis was saying, oh, yeah, well, ba Bateman is based on my dad. And then in years that followed, he was like, actually... Bateman was really, you know, me and what I was going through going because he went, he moved from L.A. to New York. He was originally going to write just some bullshit novel about like Wall Street guys. And as he was hanging out with them and learning about them, nobody ever fucking talked about the business of Wall Street. They were just talking about their house in the Hamptons. They're this. Whose girlfriend taught her? All of these things. And it was just like pissing contest of one-upsmanship. And he was so alienated and isolated. And that's where the character of Patrick Bateman kind of came from. I mean, there's a so direct correlation to what we see in the movie. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because he, Ellis doesn't really refer to himself as a homosexual or bisexual or asexual or pansexual. Um, he's been in multiple long-term relationships with men. So that's one thing we'll talk about as we get into the movie, the view of homosexuals and in the book the hard use of the f word oh, yeah. and stuff like that it's, it's very interesting to see it very much reminds me of like chuck palinuik the guy who wrote fight club and some like underpinnings of like homophobia and stuff in his works but then at the same time sexual tension between characters which we'll get into 
Uh, he described his own narrative as, quote, hallucinatory. In addressing the narrative, he was talking about how it didn't really interest him to answer the question definitively if Patrick Bateman was a murderer or not. He said, quote, it wasn't interesting to me to answer that. It was much more interesting book without that being answered. And I think it's true because it's a riddle. It leaves you going, huh. So he was talking about even the backlash from this being isolated and alone. You know, people are basically condemning him, saying, hey, this is misogynist, this is evil. And he, from his view, he wrote it to be satirical. He wrote it to be critical of people who are misogynists. But people are taking this as an autobiographical work, which could be, I mean, can you imagine how frustrating that would be as a 20 something year old? Oh, my God. Yeah. Fuck, I was worried about what people were saying on my fucking MySpace wall <laughs> when I was in my 20s. Forget that. I think the most poetic thing he talked about was, and again, going specifically to the fact he was in his 20s, quote, it was about me entering into the world of adulthood and being very disappointed by what it means to be an adult. It's going on to say, a culture that bows to all these things that I thought were bullshit. So you can kind of see that bitterness becoming you know, throughout. The book rights were purchased by Edward R. Pressman, who is one of the producers. Uh, he purchased the rights in 1992, so the year after it came out. It was already very getting a lot of headlines and press from the get-go. So bear that in mind. When we get to the end result, we're talking about production by that point of eight years. Wow. You know, to think about it. So the music was done by John Cale. The most interesting part about that is he cost nothing. The actors cost nothing. What costs everything was licensing the music. And Whitney Houston, despite actually getting an entire chapter of the book, refused to allow this, any of her songs to be used in it, even though in the film they still keep the reference to her. And it's even a joke at his expense where you have a Whitney Houston CD? Right. <laughs> so that's kind of an odd one. I mean, I could see... If I was an artist I, and I saw it like, okay, this crazy book, whatever, they're making a movie, they want to use my music, I don't think I would let them. Yeah, I don't think that it would work so well. I, and you don't want to be associated with that in the same kind of way. It, it's There's no upside to it, in my, in my view. Especially for somebody like Whitney Houston. like Yeah. Well, and then also, you have to fact, factor this in. like If you pitched this movie, if this was your elevator pitch of a movie... Who the fuck is making this movie nowadays? Nobody. Right. That sounds like a, a fucking crazy crapshoot, especially a Me Too movement. But let's so you put yourself in the mind of the 1990s. Somebody's like, hey, I got this book. Uh, it makes everybody upset and people have condemned it. And it's basically a plotless book where some guy is materialistic and then rapes and murders people. And you're like, huh, go on. He's like, oh, he also kills multiple dogs. Okay, I'm listening. He has hallucinations and shoves wads of canned meat in his face. Uh-huh. Whoever <laughs> thought that was going to be a success, it's a huge gamble and it worked. But at the time, if I present it to you in that way, you're like, no. My name, Whitney Houston. I say no. Shall we get into nicknames? Snicknames. Nicknames. So we have Christian Bale as Patrick Bateman. So apparently... Bale was like struggling with the role. He couldn't really nail it down. But then when he saw Tom Cruise doing an interview with David Letterman and he had this crazy manic nature and this, quote, intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes. Boom. He got it. Add in a dash of Nicolas Cage in The Vampire's Kiss and voila, that is your Patrick Bateman. I love it so much more now that I know that. It's crazy. <laughs> Which is funny because it also it's you know, referential to the book because of that scene with Tom Cruise in the elevator. Yeah. 
so he insisted on using an American accent at all times, so much so that some of the crew thought that he was putting on a fake accent after the movie, which is kind of interesting. Did you know Christian Bale's grandfather was a stunt double for John Wayne in the 1962 film Hatari? That's dope. I read a book just on Christian Bale to find trivia. Booyah. <laughs> He was talking about and kind of doubling down. Oh, this is a funny book. This is a funny book. Quote, I don't understand anybody who can't find the humor. It's twisted and sick, but it's so ridiculous. And that's something you'll hear him go back to again and again. You know, he could not view Bateman as a real villain because he's so, quote, ridiculous. And you see those things. And that's one thing where the visual medium certainly relays the ridiculousness much more than the black and white letter on the page. I really was relieved to find that he said, quote, I like nothing about him. He's a completely irredeeming character. You know, talking about Patrick Bateman, like he, there's nothing good about him. So it's good that he's the butt of the joke. And it's not because I feel like Bateman kind of gets the Dexter kind of gets the Scarface treatment where you have these mm -hmm. guys who like idolizes them. And it's like, no, you're, you're, missing, you're the missing the point. The point there, yeah. Yeah. He very eloquently and succinctly described the movie as saying that he goes from psychopath to psychotic. It's a subtle difference there, but I think you can understand the meaning when you've seen it. So one thing I thought was really fascinating is as he was getting ready to do the film, people kind of tried to talk him off the ledge and say, nah, dog, don't do this. And one of the references that people gave was Anthony Perkins, who played Norman Bates in Psycho. This guy, unassuming, handsome, everything right. And then was typecast and basically had to come back to the well three more times to be the same exact character because he was so pigeonholed. And to think about the crazy range that Christian Bale has had since this movie blows my mind. Not just in terms of the physical toil, like people want to talk about The Machinist, they want to talk about Batman, they want to talk about Dick Cheney. Look at the acting. Right. Crazy to me that he's been able to do this and it's all mastery of craft. It really just lends to him as an actor, just... He's so good. It's so crazy. Now, let me ask you this. Would you watch a one-man show where he plays every character? Uh, I mean, I might just because Christian Bale. Yeah. But I wouldn't like the gimmick. Yeah, I've, I admit that it's hacky, which is why I even recommended it. But he's just so good. And I, I like the supporting characters of his friends so much because they're so, so realized. Oh, yeah. Those are, I mean, I know those people. I've met those people. I've listened to those people drone on ad hominem oh, or ad yeah. nauseum. So to see him do it, I think he could do each character. That's Maybe that's what I'm getting at is he has the versatility to play every character who's in this fucking movie. Down to the 17-year-old prostitute girl he could play. <laughs> I really appreciated that he addressed specifically in a lot of the promotion for this movie, talking about pulling back on the violence. He said, you know, again, succinctly, how do you show any kind of violence without celebrating it? You know, by showing you the grotesque nature of it, sure, it's supposed to be revolting, but at a certain extent, like you are celebrating it by giving it a platform, which I think is important because the budgetary restraints I mean, they show the dead bodies what's the harm in showing him mutilating a fake body right, right? but they don't go to that extent they show the aftermath because the, the nature of the violent act itself you don't want to exalt it yeah, i don't know if i agree with that i just to me that extra step doesn't just take it into the the exalting or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it I just don't, there's nothing, maybe I'm desensitized That's a, because of all the movies that we, you know, we've seen now yeah. that I, you know, seeing the axe go into the guy, back of the guy's head, like that wouldn't. 
it bums me out actually we'll get into it but in the book he hits him across the mouth like Ooh. sideways like he swung a baseball bat and that would have been so much cooler but obviously <laughs> way more expensive yeah but then on the other hand like i kind of do like especially in that scene where it's just the blood just coming up like, right it off screen like you're letting your mind kind of create the horror and then especially for it to never have happened yeah right and that's actually a theme throughout the, the movie if you watch when it comes to the actual violent acts are you seeing him hurt someone when he actually uh, attacks the screenwriter of the film guinevere turner you see the bloody sheets you don't see him harm her when you see christy you don't see the chainsaw enter her you see mm. the aftermath of it so is he hurting these people even in his actions he's not I'm trying to think so the homeless man you do see him stab him yeah. that's the only one but that lends to a, another aspect of the movie of that i don't know if we want to talk about it now go for it i've been monologuing please do interject so the vague ending they, so they allude to it being just all in his head. Yes. With the secretary finding the book, it's like he's just fantasizing about this. I listened to an interview with the director where she says that it's more of a, he's doing something bad, but in his head, it's more grandiose. Yes. And so the things that he's actually doing are more like he's stabbing a homeless guy in an alley and curb stomping his dog, but he thinks he's chasing people with chainsaws and axing them in the head. Yeah, that's. I think that's the one that's very clearly meant to be possible, and I think that's actually a big statement on class status and everything, where even you know the prostitute isn't treated the same way, but technically speaking, she has a job. So in the materialist perspective, in the book, it's very pervasive. Every time you see a homeless person, they're flipping them off, they're making a joke, they're taunting them with money. It's very materialistic, and I think that's something that's very big in this movie as well. Only violence you really see is towards somebody who's of a different color mm -hmm. i mean because sure his first you know real words are talking about you know his friend being anti-semitic but in the book he drops that motherfucking n-bomb like it's going out of style it's crazy Maybe stephen king or something oh yeah it's <laughs> way worse than stephen king and of course i was listening to you know at times as an audiobook and reading at other times and i'm going by this fucking parking thing and i have to get a ticket from the parking thing and that guy's black and i'm like oh god patrick not now please not now oh my god yeah <laughs> I liked Brian. It's unfortunate he's not here because he was talking about where how he was listening to the book at work. Someone comes up and talks to him and he's like at this really fucked up scene. Like yep. things are like someone's being raped and murdered. And he's like trying to have a conversation with his coworker while this is going on in his ear. And he's like, it's really awkward. Could you imagine? <laughs> Obviously, Brian has a huge boner at that point. Yeah, of course. Just double awkwardness. <laughs> and then his boss gets a boner and then they like sword fight the boners. It's just... Very weird. One thing that the director, you, you were talking about her and her perspective of Bale earlier, she was very happy that he was British because of their understanding of the aristocracy and class structures. And Bale went on to say that he looks at the higher class as, quote, seemingly charmed, but then, quote, soulless and vacant. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen enough royal weddings lately to think, yes, this is totally true and correct, even though I have no understanding of your politics. Last note I wanted to make on Bale, he insisted on having Ellis's approval before taking the role, right? So he gets an exact Patrick Bateman costume, meets him at a place in Beverly Boulevard, speaks in an American accent, and doesn't break character. And so after about five minutes, Ellis is like, you have to fucking stop. I want to enjoy my food. <laughs> but imagine how fucking haunting that would be to see your brain creature in three dimensions. Right? 
Especially a psychotic one. Yeah. So I wanted to call him Batman. Yes. Okay. The Batman. The Batman. And then we have the Joker to the Batman. Jared Leto as Paul Allen. Oh, I was in a... (laughs) He's not the Joker, you (laughs) son of a bitch. Willem Dafoe. He should have been the Joker. As Detective... Donald Kimball. In the book, one scene. In the movie, he is the threat of the whole movie. He is the narrative. Because truly, if you take him out, what do you have? What what happens scene to scene? No, he just murders people. Yep. And there's nothing there. Yeah, there would be nothing to threaten being caught or yeah. found out. I love Willem Dafoe. We can call him literally anything. You can call him the Green Goblin. You can call him the guy from Antichrist who gets bloody splooge. Whatever you want to say. Ugh. Yeah, his wife hits him in the dick with a piece of wood and then jacks him off till blood comes out. Oh, yeah, it's in a movie that I've seen. <laughs> Not surprisingly, I haven't gone back to that movie in 10 years. We'll do uh, Green Goblin. Oh, can we call him Detective Pikachu? Detective Pikachu. <laughs> well, he's just a detective. And that's, okay. <laughs> I figure adding the Pikachu will... Oh, he's got such a bright, sunshiny personality in this movie. Then we have that character who resembled the Joker kind of in that one movie, maybe. Oh, he's the Joker. The Joker. The one Jake. Joker. <laughs> You're a joker if you think I'm going to let you stand for that, fuck boy. Womp womp. Oh, here's a weird change. In the book, it's Paul Owen. In the movie, it's Paul Allen. Yeah. yeah that is weird. What if they did, like, test screenings? People are like, nope, the O sound is too vulvous. It's too vaginal. We need a strong phallic L in there. <laughs> I don't know. So, in the beginning of the movie, are they talking about him or are they talking about the real life Paul Allen? They're talking about him. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like... Because they're obviously, like, trying to rub shoulders with, like, other people, right? And I'm like, okay, they're talking about Paul Allen. Yeah, no, not not Paul Gardner Allen, just not the character. Microsoft from... Paul Allen. Yes, correct. God, I was like... <laughs> That'd be a weird judgment, right? That's very uh, pejorative. What do you want to call him? Do you actually want to call him the Joker? Yeah, I do. Fine. Good thing he's only in two fucking scenes in this movie. And then next we have Josh Lucas as Craig McDermott. Do you want to just like lump him, Van Patten, and Bryce together? Yeah, they're all... The Stooges is what I want to call them. I mean, I think Bryce is in it a little bit more, but... And he's great. They're all... They all fulfill the same role. Yeah, McDermott and Bryce, I think, are notably better, but then I also think that Van Patten doesn't really have as much material to work with. Yeah. In my head and watching the movie, I just... I did not keep track of them. Yeah. It's easier for me having read the book, so I really don't care. We can just kind of lump it. You have Chloe Savini as Jean. I wanted to call her Billie Jean. Billie Jean. She doesn't get laid by Patrick Bateman, so you could easily say, perhaps, possibly, that Billie Jean is not my love. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I went a little uh, with Al Pacino at the end. Hoo-ha! <laughs> 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 or any given Sunday. Hua! God. <laughs> <laughs> and you have uh, one of your Turner who is actually the scribe of the film as Elizabeth, who is totally fine with him fucking his cousin or whatever. That's weird. Right? She was a little drunk. Yeah. Not really. And she was on ecstasy. In the book, interestingly enough, Christy's not on ecstasy. It's only Elizabeth. In this, they both are, which I think is justified. Because it makes more sense that they both are. And Samantha Mathis as Courtney Rollinson, who is the hooker. No, Courtney's Lewis's girlfriend. Oh. I want to have two babies. I'm oh, so the one that was always on, I'm so on some good. sort of downer. Yeah. Matt Ross, also, who plays Lewis Crothers, would have been a great Joker. 
those creepy ass cheeks of his, I think it'd been great. So Reese Witherspoon as Evelyn Williams. Yeah. You want to call her a Ring of Fire? It's a reference to when she was in Walk the Line with Joaquin Phoenix, the real Joker, according to most incels. <laughs> You're I all still, I wrong. I still haven't seen it. Don't. It's stupid. Really? It takes fucking forever for nothing to happen. You know what you should do? Watch Batman 1989 twice. Well, this is cute. She presented Christian Bale with his first Academy Award, 2011. Isn't that nice? What's not nice is she was three months pregnant and people were smoking while they were filming this movie. And I was really concerned as a father. I was like, excuse me, do you know the impact uh, it could have on your unborn child, Reese? <laughs> she doesn't really need a name either. Yeah, most, most of these people don't. So let's recap. Do the recapitation. Stuff happens yeah. throughout. Ending with Christian Bale giving a monologue where he briefly slips into his British accent and out. And it just ends. Fair? Fair. Done. It's all you, slay-by-play guy. Right. So the credits open with blood dripping and pouring, and then there's a knife raising, and it's cutting meat, and raspberries are falling, and they're plating a fancy plate of food. And it zooms out to a dinner party. Did you feel poor as fuck? I felt poor as fuck. Yeah. (laughs) And it also reminded me exactly of the opening for the show Dexter. The grotesque sawing of meat and stuff like that with this kind of like... same thing you know wistful music did you notice also that the font in the title credits mimicked the font of the business cards oh no i didn't first name regular case last name all caps that's what you notice when you used to do graphic design i feel like taking notes while watching a movie even though i've literally been a transcriptionist for 13 years yeah i suck at it (laughs) i think that's one of the hard things brian has a really good system where he watches the movie twice a lot of the time and for movies that I've already seen, it's way easier, but I definitely agree that it's hard with the, for the first time ingesting, and especially a movie that's as bad shit as this. I mean, you're all working off your back foot the whole time. Oh, yeah. If I wasn't watching it with my wife, I'd be pausing it. Oh, I and, but then so. she'd get so mad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Your wife would not stand for it. You'd get like a TV remote to the side of your dome. So the waiters are going around describing the fancy schmancy dishes. and There's a great detail to that in the book. Patrick Bateman loses his fucking mind at a waiter because the waiter says, I have blank. He's like, you don't have, the restaurant has, whatever. (laughs) And so the first guy who says anything is, I have. And then the next waiter says, we have. And I was like, that's a very, very good detail. And I will tell you this, I don't know the last time I saw a book adaptation that was so succinct. I mean, there are whole sections of just lifted dialogue. It's very well done. I can see that now after watching it where he gets pissed off at like, stupid little things that aren't stupid little things for him exactly right that's the you know be all end all so bateman and he's sitting there with two colleagues batman and two colleagues and they're just so it's like what robin and nightwing (laughs) so they're they're discussing who's in the room and this is where i thought they're talking about the paul allen oh gotcha 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 which i think most i mean anybody who knows of microsoft should know that right but you mean is he Steve Jobs? Because if he's not Steve Jobs, <laughs> I don't know about him. So another guy comes to the table and he's like, they're, they're Josh and John, each other. And they're, another guy comes in and he's like, they don't have good bathrooms to do coke in. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's so pouty and whiny about it. And they're talking crap to each other. And I didn't write it down. Did you write down the where he called them like a Jew? Yeah, and he says, cool it with the anti-Semitic remarks. And then they talk about how he's dating Evelyn as part of the ACLU or whatever. Yeah. So even the fact that he's being diplomatic, they make fun of. And in the book, they do a very good job of showing that he says all the right things. And it's completely vapid. They only do it once in the movie, really. 
but it's a, a good hey, detail. Where they're at the the he, dinner party, the dinner party, and he's yeah. like talking about saving the world. And exactly. All so pandering and it's totally contradictory and it means fucking nothing and that's what every time i hear any kind of political discourse i'm like that's exactly what everyone's saying except (laughs) falkelberti i love that he delivers it so well though that you're like wait is he is he fucking with us or is he like sincere yeah (laughs) and then the juxtaposition with the immediate next scene you're like oh this guy's dissociative Right, and so they. I love how they get the check, and he's like, "Well, talking about reasonable, it's only five seventy. <laughs> right. They all throw their fucking platinum cards in there. Yep. Bastards. Well, one disappointing detail: when they're doing coke later, they're sniffing it through hundred dollar bills. Not the case in the book. They're snorting it off their platinum Amex cards, <laughs> and one guy even gets very like looked down upon for having only a gold Amex. Awkward. Is that the weird guy with the bowl cut? Lewis? No, no. <laughs> So the next scene is when he goes to the bar, and this is, again, just directly lifted from the book verbatim. He wants to use these drink coupons, and she's like, "Eh, they don't work after 11, so he has to pay. And so as soon as she turns her back, he says, you're a fucking ugly bitch. I want to stab you to death and play with your blood. And she, just like everybody in the book, just like everybody in the movie, completely doesn't react, which goes to, in the book, it's really interesting. I'll give it a lot more credit, I think. That in the book, it's portrayed as people being so self-absorbed and so self-indulgent and wanting to hear themselves speak that he is saying these things and people just aren't listening versus is he even saying them at all? Yeah. I had that go through my head when he did it to the the dry cleaner lady. Yep. But she's obviously like, <gasps> like <laughs> and this starts arguing back again. But yeah. I was trying to think like, so is that, I just threw me for a loop. I don't know. But they probably did that on purpose. Exactly. So. Well, like, we'll get into like there. They have different actors get different directions for different takes of it. I mean, it, it very much so to stagger your expectation and everything. And this is kind of where the I think the editing is kind of weird because they go to the, the club scene is so fast and it's just it's just to show that. Yep. And then it's str- it's straight to this condo. Yep. Or his apartment in like a high rise with so the voiceover and the music with the yeah. piano. Yeah. So everything's white. He's walking around in his underwear. He's talking about himself, his self care routine, his diet, his exercise, his shower routine. A good cute note is when he's taking a piss, he's looking at a Les Mis poster and seeing his reflection in it. They never shut the fuck up about Les Mis in the book. All the posters, the soundtrack, whose recording is better? Is it the British recording or the American recording? It's... Well, it makes perfect sense for for the class thing. Exactly. I love the where he's pulling off the mask yeah. and talking about how there's only an idea of Patrick Bateman, some kind of an abstraction, but there's no real me, only an entity. Quote, I simply am not there. So good. His eyes are so dead. Yep. Oh, my God. It's probably one of the best scenes. They were actually legitimately nerve-wracked that they wouldn't be able to take the facial mask off. So it's made out of silicone. So that's the way they're able to do it because they couldn't, you know, find a facial mask that would do that. That would, yeah. So the next scene, he's walking into his office. He's listening to Walking on Sunshine on his Walkman. Whoa! Now, does this song make you, what does this song make you think of? Does it make you think of Fry from Futurama? No. Oh, you don't have a soul. <laughs> I don't think I watched... I didn't watch enough of that show. You didn't? Oh, it's delightful. It holds up very nicely. It's also in one of the Mr. Bean movies, so you might consider rewatching that. Don't hate me. I'm not a fan of Mr. Bean. What? <laughs> you are absolutely kidding me right now. Is you it because... Me, you sent me a video of him that I watched. I thought it was funny where he was in the... Um, he was sitting in the waiting room <laughs> The when we did like Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. I think. And that was pretty funny. But I just like... Uh, 
Is it because you haven't seen him or just because... I think it's just the... Um, I don't know. The a movie I saw with him just killed me for because it's the american version you fuck with maybe i don't know americans are dumb yeah we are you gotta go with the british stuff his show (laughs) i can't even get into it you've wounded me mortally i'll give it a shot you need to watch it with me because you'll just see me howling with laughter and you'll want to fit in like patrick bateman you'll just laugh too okay (laughs) you want to check out my business card you want to see mine (laughs) no I, the first like big firm that I worked at, we had these business cards that were plastic, like a debit card. They were that thick and they could, they could like somewhat translucent and transparent in different parts of it and had this metallic sheen. My father-in-law still has that card and he shows it off to people like he's Patrick Bateman. I'm like, you need to stop. This is a bad thing. Just carry it around in a little metal carrying case. Yep. <laughs> Dude, don't you love the fucking idea that he carries that whole stupid case to carry one card? I love it. All that of speaks them. so much to the excess of the 80s. Okay, so he's walking into his office listening to Walking on Sunshine. And he's going over his schedule with his secretary. Super accurate dialogue. He tells her to make reservations for dinner for two. She asks if it's something romantic and he kind of gets... It's funny because he doesn't get mad. He just kind of gets like... Coy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Where it's he's a, like, I'll make the reservation. Right. And that, it would make it such a good juxtaposition to when she says, you look nice today. And he says, don't wear that outfit again. Yeah, yeah. And what's great is I saw a behind the scenes thing where it was the gal playing Billie Jean who's you know, talking about her acting process and everything. And I got to see her deliver her. What did you say? I didn't hear you. In like three different inflections. It was really interesting to see how like different that scene could have been. I think they, they definitely chose the best take. That's a, such a great scene. Yeah. He tells her. You're prettier than that. Right? And then she <laughs> smiles and leaves and she totally laps it up. It's so gross. And yeah, their relationship is very different in the book. And that's probably the one area where character development is lacking in the movie by comparison. Definitely. So another cu- quick cut to backseat of the car with Reese Witherspoon. Yep. And he's listening to Simply Irresistible. As she just blathers on and on. Right. And he's narrating over this that he's trying to listen to the new Robert Palmer tape when his supposed fiance keeps buzzing in his ear and then she's so she's talking about wanting to get married and he finally takes off his, his headset and she's like I want to get married and he's like he doesn't want to take the time off of work yep <laughs> and then she throws in his face that his dad practically owns a company and he's talks about he's not going to work for his dad he's going to do it on his own and this is something Brian and I had talked about I wish he was here without a squirty I'm sick boy but but he was talking about that he had a theory that Patrick Bateman was actually molested by his dad, which is what you get all of this manic need to be manly, you know, this materialism, this demeaning misogyny towards women, all being very related to that and why he's so defiantly not going to work for his dad, basically tries to be the exact same person. And then in this, I thought it was also interesting in the book, they're talking about getting engaged. In this, they're already engaged talking about being married, which I think, again, speeds things along and establishes their relationship and the you know, depth of it much more quickly. Right. She's kind of a weird character in this, though, because she doesn't really come up that often. She's ditzy in this. Yeah, she's not. But in the book, she's also very easily dismissed as well. So it, it is true to form. The big point of it is when she says, like, well, you know, like, basically, like, why do you want to work like this? Why do you want to be this way? And he says, because I want to fit in. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> How many people like that, you know? So they're going to dinner with Reese Witherspoon's 
cousin, her boyfriend, and then his friends show up. Bryce shows up. Yep. And then Lewis. Basically, he he he's narrating over this. He's pretty sure that his fiance is cheating on him with Bryce. Yep. But he doesn't really care because he's cheating on what's his name? Lewis's. Yeah. With he's Courtney. cheating with Lu- with Courtney. So. And he also talks about the fact that Bryce is the most interesting person he knows. So she kind of gets a pass. So I was like, that's <laughs> hilarious. And then he does the whole monologue about doing good for the world and. Yeah, we need to have traditional moral values, but we need to give women a better place in the workplace and blah, 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 blah. And everybody's just so captivated. And you see the two artists who are like, ugh. <laughs> Cuts to scene where he is at an ATM at night. He gets out money. A woman walks by and he approaches her and just, he comes up next to her and looks at her and says hi. And she kind of just looks at him and they start walking along. And she gives him that second look. You know, she's doomed. Because she gave him those hungry eyes the second time. Mm-hmm. And then it goes to him at the dry cleaners, trying to get his expensive sheets, bloody stains out. They, like, they very much narrow this and, and make it much more breezy in the movie than it is in the book. And I appreciate that because it just feels a little bit more tiresome because he also gets into the girl. If the girl doesn't mean anything to him, it doesn't make sense that he would elaborate on like, oh, she works or she lives in the same building as me and she's heavy and she's this. If she doesn't mean anything, you don't care. It reminds me of people who are like on Facebook and like, oh, this person doesn't mean shit to me. If they didn't mean shit to you, you wouldn't be posting about it. Exactly. So there you go. There's a one of his friends come in, Victoria. That's the gal. So in the book, that's just some lady who works or lives in his building. And he doesn't know her name. He guesses her name wrong. She corrects him. So a lot of the dialogue is the same about him like trying to get out and go to some quote unquote like lunch meeting. And it just in this, they just breeze over it because you never see her again. So what's it matter? In the book, you never see her again. Both of them try to make dates with him. They both get rejected. But in the movie, it's just much. I don't know. I'm talking about it longer than the fucking scene right. was. <laughs> okay. So the next scene is back at his condo. He's on the phone with Courtney. He's got porn playing on in the background. Sadly, it's not shemale porn because in the book, he watches shemale porn. I was like, how progressive. <laughs> and when was this movie made? Movie was made in 2000. So there's, there was plenty of shemale porn around. If you knew where to find it. It's I guess. called the internet. <laughs> Have you heard of Malaysia? <laughs> <laughs> so he, he wants to go for dinner. So he calls the restaurant. I don't Dorcia. Know, Dorcia. Yeah. So. This is like the hottest ticket, and he he's, says he's going to get reservations, so he hangs up. He calls, asks for reservations at 8, and the guy just laughs at him. And he, this is where you start to see him losing it. Yep. He gets it, it, so mad. It's a repetitive obsession he has throughout the book. It's pretty great. And it keeps coming up. And in this, so she's like, she's already taken medication. She's going to pass out. And then she hears the word Dorothy, and she's like, okay, I'm up. And it's, yeah. So they're, they're in the car. She's clearly all drugged up. They're at the restaurant. She's falling asleep. Is not Dorcia. Well, is that Donald Trump's car? And then she's like, I just want a child, two perfect children. And I was like, no, you don't need a child. You need <laughs> therapy and a puppy dog. No, you don't need a puppy dog. You need therapy and a coupon for. A, nope, that's not a good joke either. I'm trying to say something that doesn't sound psychophobic. So I'm just going to say, you need therapy. Boom. So the next scene, they are at the office. And this is where we meet the Joker. Yeah. 
we learn of like the mix-up where he thinks that Bateman is a guy named Marcus. And then this is also the where they compare all the business cards. Yes. For the first time. For the first time. One guy pulls it out and they like explain it or whatever. And it's such stupid, subtle differences. Oh, it's beautiful. It's I love it so, so much. Funny. One of the things that's great. So you have Paul Allen. He says that he wants to play squash with one of the other guys. Gives him his business card. So it's not even a one-to-one him to Bateman right so that's prompts bateman to say oh look what i have and he talks about i love the fact that the color is bone and the subtle hint because mm-hmm. everybody else it's like oh it's white it's eggshell whatever it's very banal and they're talking about the typefaces did you notice that every single card misspelled acquisition no yes. i was too busy on them all being vice presidents yeah that's another <laughs> good point so it shows that like they don't care about the substance they just care about the presentation that's right. true to form on all of them. They go around, and then so Van Patten's card is more successful than his. And he's like, why don't we see Paul Allen's card? His vocal inflection on this is perfect. That weavering, the way he drops it, this is the scene of the movie. Like, it's weird that the sleigh of the game is a scene where he's holding a piece of paper. Right? <laughs> but it's the best part of the movie. I could watch this scene daily. Yeah, he gets like shook that's the only way i can put it right is he's like wow i am nothing because of a fucking business card exactly it is his identity it's not just his namesake it's his fucking identity and it's also it's not the objective value of the thing it's the fact of somebody's perception of it you know i'm gonna get onto a rant here you'll like this even though you're a married guy whenever i have a friend who's pouting about how a girl doesn't like them i always talk about this Let's say your favorite ice cream in the entire world is mint chocolate chip, right? It's your favorite ice cream. Boom. Did you know that? I did, was that accurate? Yeah. Sweet. There you go. <laughs> That's. I just know you on a metaphysical level. So mint chocolate chip, I, I can offer you the best cookies and cream in the fucking world. It doesn't matter. It's not mint chocolate chip. So objectively, one could be better than the other, but your preference is there. So why the fuck do you want somebody settling? And that's exactly this. Objectively speaking, his card might be better, but it's just the perception. It's just, quote, I want to fit in. It's just that weepy, needy bullshit. If I can give anybody one bit of armchair, like, bullshit psychology, don't be that fucking guy. Don't give a fuck what these people think. Don't give a fuck if our podcast likes your posts. Just be you and be fucking contented because there's no amount of likes that you're going to get that's going to offset you being, like, vapid inside like this character is. Some great life advice. I try. (laughs) All right, moving on. So the next scene is... Bateman walking down the alley at night and he sees a guy, sees a homeless guy, and he kind of goes off on him. He's like, why are you homeless? Why don't you just get a job? He's berating him. I wish that people could see Jim's manic eyes when he did that voice. Jesus. (laughs) Color me aroused. (sighs) That's why we stopped doing YouTube videos. So he leans, he bends down and has a briefcase and he opens it up and the guy thinks he's going to get some like help and he gets a fucking knife in the chest. So in the book, he stabs his fucking eyes out and stabs him a bunch, then breaks his dog's two front legs. And then he comes back and taunts the guy later when he's sitting there blind. And because the guy has a sign that says that he was blinded in Vietnam, he's like, you weren't in Vietnam. Wow. Dark shit, right? So this is a scene we were talking about where this is what his murders are really like. And if you subscribe to that idea that he's 
he didn't do all of this crazy stuff, but maybe he has killed some people. It's not all just in his head that all the stupid, all the crazy shit he's actually done is just is this th- type of stuff. It's not the I don't know how to explain the the high. It's nothing, people, and I don't mean that to be disparaging of prostitutes of people who are poor, but that's the way that they're commonly perceived in like law enforcement. People pick on the defenseless, people who aren't going to be missed, people who aren't going to cast a big shadow when it comes to when they've been left. You know, if he did really kill Paul Allen, do you realize how many fucking people that guy's accountable to in his daily right. life? If he kills Al, nobody gives a shit, and that's a, a true point that I think that if he does kill somebody, it's like this. So next scene is Bateman's getting a massage. And a facial. What beautiful skin you have, Mr. Bateman. So fine. He's, so smooth. <laughs> he's narrating again about how he's not human, how there's something that's growing inside of him. And he's not talking about a xenomorph, I'll tell you that right Mm-mm. now. Did you notice his huge tuft of pubes? When he's, uh, yeah. his, oh, <laughs> yeah. God. Want to floss with that stuff, baby. Ooh. <laughs> so the next scene is at a christmas party and he's talking to paul allen paul allen calls him marcus again which sets him off and he's like hey like we should go to dinner so he's already you know the gears are are moving his head he's setting it up and setting it up under the guise of being marcus and Uh, so when evelyn comes up and she's like why is he calling you marcus mistletoe alert and showing that (laughs) insincere cover-up one very startling difference from the book. In the book, it's not a short Asian man who's the waiter. It's actual dwarves. She has paid short people to walk around and give out hors d'oeuvres. And it really stuns me that that's not in the movie. Oh, my God. So they go to dinner. It's like a... Texarkana. Texarkana, yeah. So not what Paul Allen was expecting. I could have gotten us in a Dorcia. <laughs> So he's like kind of asking them how he got a high this high profile profile account. The Fisher account. He's yeah. getting him basically he's getting Jared Leto drunk. And then he since he thinks that Bateman is Marcus, he insults Bateman. And which even just sets him off more. Can I tell you what I thought the twist was gonna be the first time I saw this movie when I was a kid? Hmm. I thought that it was gonna be that there was no Bateman. That Bateman wasn't even Bateman. Bateman was an identity that Marcus Halberstrand had and that that Christian Bale was not playing Patrick Bateman because he didn't exist. He was playing Marcus. That was my immediate reaction at the end when he's talking to his lawyer. Uh, yeah. I was like, and I was trying to like figure it out. I was like, well, so I guess he's not, doesn't exist. There's multiple personalities. I was like, what's going on? Yeah. So this scene progresses to Bateman's condo and there's like white linens on everything. There's the newspaper. What's the style section all over? Do you have a dog? Chow? And I think this, uh, the, when that dinner, this kind of leads up to where he's like playing Marcus, basically. He, it leads up to where he gets all manic and he's like dancing around and getting the axe. It, it leads into that so perfectly. Yeah. And it just ramps up. It goes from zero to a hundred in like a minute. It's just. It's amazing. So th- there's two things that happen in the scene that blow my mind. In the book, it's an entire chapter where he's just talking about the music. He does it with Whitney Houston. He talks about Huey Lewis. He talks about Phil Collins, where it's just talking. There's no underlying action. The fact that they consolidate and stack that on top of scenes is perfect, right? So that already impresses me. But think about this. There's one lingering shot where he says, see if you can get a a reservation at Dorsey now, you fucking bastard. 
whack, whack, whack. He sits there. He takes the raincoat off. He sits down. That is one shot. And in that shot, maybe 20 seconds. And think of how much you see and how like, just great Christian Bale is at winding himself down. Yeah. Oh, it is fucking masterful. <laughs> it's so good. So obviously he axes him. He axes him a question. Axes. I must ask you a question. So he axes him in the face or in the head. We don't know. But we were talking about that earlier where he just gets the blood. The blood spray was so good. It's perfect. And then he ends up dragging the body outside. <laughs> this is another thing that should tip you off to that this didn't happen. Yeah. Because he's dragging a body. And there's a blood and streak. And there's a blood streak. And then he, he flags down a cab and puts it in. And then... Well, also, they had to change the brand of the bag to John Paul Gaultier because the actual company wouldn't let the film production use their bag to carry a dead body. <laughs> and then Lewis comes up, oh, my God, where did you get that overnight bag? I was like, right? oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> For the actor that played Lewis, what else has he been in? That's, is he a big actor? Because I've seen him in... Um, the only thing I've really noticed him in was uh He plays a Silicon lot of villains. Valley. Exactly. I feel like I've seen another movie with him in it recently, though, too. Well, he... So, in terms of film, he hasn't done a tremendous amount of film acting, but he's done a lot more, like, television acting. He was in The Aviator, uh, Good Night, Good Luck, uh, Pushing Tin. You remember that one? Huh? Where John Cusack and Billy Bob Thornton? That movie sucks. <laughs> he was in uh, Face Off, 12 Monkeys, American Horror Story, Silicon Valley. He was in Stephen King's Rose Red. 2002? I don't know. I, I feel like I've seen him something else. Anyways, he plays such a good, kind of nerdy, I don't know. It's kind of funny because all the other guys are so well-dressed and present, well-presented, and he's got this bowl cut and like bleached, bleached hair type of thing going. He's he very, very sore thumb. So anyways, he gets the body in the cabin, and then he goes to Paul Allen's place, and he gets pissed off even more because his apartment is more expensive because he's overlooking Central Park. A moment of sheer panic when I realize that Paul's apartment overlooks the park and it is obviously more expensive than mine. Oh, that reminded me of his narration when they're walking to dinner the first time and he's like, I'm on the verge of tears because I don't know if we got a good table. And the relief that rushes over me when I see what we did. <laughs> You're like, fuck, dude, stop having an orgasm from looking at the table. I also really love when he compares himself to Marcus and admits that they have the same bar uh, barber, but that his haircut is slightly better than Marcus's. Yeah. They wear the same glasses and the same type of suit, but then again, all of them do. Exactly. <laughs> and they're all not prescription. In the book, they very specifically address the fact that it is not prescription lenses. It's just this frame. fucking vapid, stupid thing to wear fake glasses to look more intellectual, this pseudo bullshit. I love it. So he packs Paul Allen's bags. He's making it look like he left town. Hi, it's Paul. I'm going to London for a few days. Victoria, sayonara, babe, or whatever the fuck he says. It's That voice is so annoying. <laughs> so the next scene is at Bateman at his office. He's listening to music Lady again. And the secretary comes in and says that there's a detective here to see him. So this is when... William Defoe comes in. And so he got the direction to do the scene three different ways. One, where he suspects Bateman. Two, where he's completely unaware. And three, where he's unsure. And it seems to me very clear that they, in editing, splice those together. Clips of each one. Because his facial expressions change and there's just so much subtle. I love how unnerving this is if you're looking at it from his perspective. Because how do you read Willem Defoe? Yeah. 
I know just the 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 little ways that he his his vocal inflections yep. for certain questions. And you're just like, is he is he questioning or is he just is that just how he talks? Well, you know, and when he's talking about where Paul Allen went to school, he's like, well, don't you know this? He goes, yeah, but I want to know if you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I do in depositions all the damn time. <laughs> I love the the reference to the quote that Yale thing with the cocaine and homosexuality, which is also in the book. And it's just so obtuse. It's hilarious. So the reason that he's there in the book is he's actually going to be interviewing Lewis, whereas in this, it seems instantaneously, it's way more antagonistic. It's, you know, he's automatically on the defensive because he's the target versus the other one. It's like he presents it like, oh, I'm just kind of I'm just kind of around. So you might have asked you a couple of questions. So it, it ramps up a little bit more. Did you notice that Bateman says that he has a lunch meeting with Cliff Huxtable at the Four Seasons, which is Bill Cosby? No, I didn't know. So dumb. <laughs> yeah. So the next scene is Bateman working out at home. While watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yep. And that's all he's doing is just working out. Just crunches, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then he does the, uh, th- there's a very accurate shot of a breakfast that he has in the book. And then he's doing jump rope and he does that like crossover trick, which was completely improvised and like caught the director off guard. And so that was just a super quick scene. And then it goes on to Bateman in a limo and he's picking up a hooker. And in the book, she's 17. Oh, really? Well, she looks 17. She doesn't look 17 in the movie. Yeah. I think they did that on purpose. Yeah. So he asks her if she wants to come to his apartment. And then while they're driving there, he's on the phone. Ask, he's asking for a blonde who does couples. So it's obviously he's setting up something. And he tells her that his name is Paul and her name is going to be Christy. And she should only respond to Christy. As they're listening to If You Don't Know Me By Now by Harold Melvin. So they're at the apartment and he's the, or she's taking a bath and the other girl arrives. Not a blonde. More of a dirty, dirty blonde. blonde. And I love the look on her face. She's like, fuck, you're one of these people. <laughs> so he puts on Phil Collins and they brings them both to the bedroom and he's talking about music again. And this is, it's so good. In the book, it's so tedious. And then to have it like this, where he's like watching, like, this is every man's dream, right? We're supposed to be like, what's a man's dream? You're supposed to say a woman, two women, blah, blah. There are two women ready to just slather their vaginas on each other. And he's just like, <laughs> Phil Collins, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so yeah, so he's video, he gets on his video camera. He's Did you notice that, like, that he, of course, he chooses the Phil Collins album cover where it's him like glowering in red and looking <laughs> terrifying? This is a. Uh, so he yeah. takes him to, to Pound Town. Yeah, and he's, you know, watching himself in the mirror and flexing and. Which is kind of art imitating life because Bale actually like drew stick figures and gave it to the director of like what positions he thought would make him look the best. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, man. So in the book, after they have sex, Christy touches his wrist and he says, don't touch the Rolex. But Rolex was like, the fuck you will use our name. So he has to change it to don't touch the watch. Uh, that's funny. And then so, so yeah, they wake up like whatever. Sometime later, she touches his watch. She gets mad. And then he gets up and goes through his drawer and there's like a bunch of like, I don't know, knives and torture devices or whatever it is. And then one of the, Christy tries to leave and he's like... You say we're not done yet, yeah. And then it just cuts to them leaving. Thank God. But one of them had like a bunch of scratches on their back, yep. so I don't know if he he abuses the fuck but, out yeah. of them, yeah, and, and tortures they, them. But yeah. they were like, 
but he ready knows to go. But he paid be, them exactly, and because they're prostitutes, this is what I mean as far as like the like the less than dead or whatever. Because they've engaged in an illegal act, the only way they can report him is by saying, "I'm a prostitute. I was doing something illegal." So he knows that. So that's why they right. live. Gross, right? Definitely. And then it's on to drinks with the boys, and they make the joke about if, you know women having personalities. Oh yeah, I know. There's there's no smart women. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Or if they are smart, it's because they're offsetting the fact they're fucking haggard looking. Yeah. But the, here's a weird one. Van Patten is the first one to use the word hard body, which in the book is every fucking woman who's hot. Oh, there's some hard bodies over here. And, oh, <laughs> she was a real hard body. I was like, Jesus Christ, come up with anything else. <laughs> I like how Bateman in the scene brings up Ed Gein. Ed Gein? Gein? Gein. He has the way I've always heard it pronounced. He, he pronounces it Gein. Which I think, is it, yeah, Gein. But what's even weirder, that's not an Ed Gein quote. That's an Edmund Kemper quote. Oh. Yeah, the quote, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part wants me to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and treat her right. The other part, you know, what her head would look like on a stick. <laughs> so Lewis shows up. And he wants to show <laughs> off his business card, which sets Bateman off again. Because it's like it's got gold filigree. And you're like, what yeah. the fuck, man? <laughs> so Bateman goes to the bathroom and puts on a glove. And he's going to grab Lewis by the neck. And then he just kind of puts his hands on him. But then not really. And then Lewis turns around and like kind of removes Bateman's glove and then kisses his hand. And it totally comes on to him. Yep. Which freaks Bateman out, and he kind of and he goes to the sink and washes his gloves, <laughs> and he, he's like going to leave in a hurry, and then Lewis is like, "What's what's wrong?" And he's like, "I have to return some videotapes." <laughs> <laughs> so this is a uh, part that Brian brought up in terms of our discussion about his theory that that Patrick has been molested by his dad is that he has every opportunity to kill Lewis. He can kill Lewis multiple times thereafter. He never does. Right. Because he's a closeted homosexual. And then his, yeah, his reaction to to that. Yeah. In the book, there's a whole scene where they're in a store and Lewis is literally like holding on to Patrick's leg and he has to like drag him in the, around. It's very weird. <laughs> but that scene's even weird too because that one really leads me to wonder this question of his perception of people as well as like the gross things he's doing because it seems like everybody's in love with him. Evelyn's in love with him. His ex-girlfriend Bethany's in love with him. Jean's in love with him. Lewis is in love with him. To the point where you start to question, like, do people even like him? Because it's just so odd. Because he even asks Jean later on in the book, why do you love me? And she says all of this, like, very banal shit that is not very specific. It's like when you read a fortune cookie where it's like, you are a person with eyes. And you're like, huh, that kind of stuff. Do go on. So next scene is the detective is at his office again. And he's asking about where he was the night of Alan's disappearance, and he can't remember. So he's like, okay, I'll like figure it out, and we'll talk again later. And then he pulls out, the detective pulls out a, a Huey Lewis in the news CD, and Bateman has like a weird reaction to it. I love it, because he says that he doesn't listen to it because Huey is, quote, too black sounding for me. Yeah. What the fuck? So the next scene is him and Courtney going at it. Raw to the raw to the raw to the raw to the raw dog. And then I don't remember what happens. I didn't write that many notes for this one. But he. This is basically her just uh, asking if he's going to call her before Easter. And then he basically brushes her off. And then they're at the club. All right. So they're at the club. And, and he's then... talking about, funny enough, so you, you don't see Patrick with a dong bag on. And the next thing out of Bryce's mouth is, 
that he thinks that all diseases can be transmitted sexually, like autism and stuff, which is dyslexia and everything. And it's interesting. This is presented like these stalls are just for cocaine. There's even a shelf for it. So yeah. it's I like this way more because it just shows the ex- the excess of the time. I like how the the guy in the next stall over was like. Keep it down. I'm trying to do drugs. Yeah. <laughs> if that's okay with the F word over in the next stall, and you're like, whoa, calm it down. And then I love it. He goes, sorry, it's the steroids, which is again in the book. It's very true. If, if you ever want a really fun listen, go listen to Macho Man Randy Savage on the Arsenio Hall show. He openly admits to doing steroids, but claims he stopped because it was giving him PMS. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Oh, man. So they're upstairs. Uh, Bateman and Bryce are talking to these girls. and He's just trying to impress them with a, his job. Yeah. And the next thing you know, they're on. That's the, the murders and execution scene. And then you're right. right. They're outside. And she's like, you think I'm dumb, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think you're dead. And that's why the next scene is him pr- like brushing himself with his, her hair. Oh, yeah. So oh. he's in the office and he's just sitting there and like twirling this like this little lock of, of blonde hair like against his hair. And if he was Sir Lancelot and this was ye old times, that'd be romantic. But then you're like, oh, he just murdered that yep. girl. Oh. So his secretary comes in. And he's doing a crossword puzzle, and only words that he's filling out are meat and bone. In the book, she offers to help him, and she even looks at it, and she doesn't correct him at all. It's, again, like this weird thing where people are just either so self-interested, they don't get it, or he's not actually doing these things. He asks her to go to dinner with him anywhere she wants, and she finally comes with Dorcia. In the book, (laughs) this is his greatest shame that's completely disregarded. So he actually takes her to Dorcia. They go. They sit down at a table because he lies and says that he's another couple. That couple shows up and they have to like run. And Gene's like laughing and enjoying the time. And so he like really kind of starts to have some sort of like to the best that he's capable affection towards her. Which is an interesting scene. It's kind of weird they didn't do that. But, I mean, the, the scene in, with the nail gun is amazing. So. Yeah. I was going to say, what, what we did get was pretty dang good. So she actually gets kind of suspicious when, she ca- when he calls to make the reservations, which is totally fake because he didn't give a name or anything. But they anyways, know me. They, she comes over to his house. Uh, he, he, he opens the freezer and or asks her if she wants to obey, grabs her bay, and there's a head in a bag. Which was achieved with a false bottom uh, for the tray. Oh. Kind of cool. Just a person with a bag over there. Yeah. So he kind of asks her, like, what she wants to do with her life. While he's walking around the kitchen, he's, like, pressing knives. He's grabbing tape from the cupboard. His, like, torture cupboard. It's, like, right there. And then he grabs a nail gun and walks around the back of the couch and kind of points it at her head. And then the phone rings. And it's Evelyn, and she's leaving a voice because at this point he's asked her, "Are you seeing anybody seriously?" She asked him if he's seen anybody seriously, and then Evelyn's like, "Hi, Mister Man, I love you." Blah blah blah. Yeah. Oh, I know you. I don't like it when I call you that, sweetheart. Bye. <laughs> and she's just like, "Oh, well, my snatch is dry now. I better leave." And he's like, "You had better leave. I don't want to hurt you." And he is meaning, "I'm going to shoot you in the fucking head with a nail gun." And she thinks he's talking about right. the pain of the heart. And it's clear, like he's so struggling. To like keep it down, and he's just like he's Eddie Murphy in Bowfinger. Keep it together, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together. You know what I'm talking about? The Laker <laughs> girls. Go watch Bowfinger. Everybody, pause the episode, watch Bowfinger, come back because I'm hijacking the rest of this episode. All we're going to talk about is Bowfinger for the next 20 minutes. So the next scene, he's at dinner with a detective. He asks him again what he was doing the night of Alan's disappearance, 
And then you find out that Marcus, according to his date book, says that he was with Patrick Bateman, thus giving right. Bateman an alibi. But you know that's not the case. But again, it's a situation where these people are so interchangeable on their identities. Nobody knows who everybody is, but everybody's obsessed with their perception of these people who they don't know. That that's like the crux of their being. And so the like wave of relief that washes over him is pretty great as they finish the scene. Next scene is going back to pick up the same hooker. She doesn't want to get in. He says, you know, I just want to talk, so get in. And she mentions that what happened to her last time, she might need surgery. She eventually does get in, and he writes her a check, and then she gets back out of the car. And then he follows her and offers her, like, a wad of cash. Reminds you of playing Grand Theft Auto at all? Yep. Yeah. Beep, beep. So she gets back in the car, and then his friend Elizabeth is joining them at the apartment. So they're in the apartment, and... So then that's when he spikes both their drinks with ecstasy. Right. And he's like, why don't you all fuck? And he's talking about Whitney Houston. Yep. And Uh, they laugh at him, which is great. Yeah. (laughs) So he's getting them to make out, have sex, and so they're having sex. Like you do. And the the hooker, so I'll call her Christy, because that was her assumed name. Uh, so Christy, she like tries to sneak out and she's like backing up and then like she like sees the like blood and the the girl Elizabeth starts like screaming and there's just blood all over the sheets. And so I don't know, I guess he was trying like, was he biting her or something? Yeah. In the book, he like bites her tit off. Okay. Yeah. Because they don't really show anything. And then she starts screaming and running and this is a crazy crazy chase scene she's amazing like in hollywood think about how rarely you see somebody look truly unattractive and i don't mean i'm not trying to be mean i'm trying to mean like there is no poise there's no delicacy to what she's doing she is stomping she's squatting she's screaming she she looks so desperate and manic it's a very good job at being effective like she is truly afraid there's no pomp and circumstance like think about movies where you see like somebody like angelina jolie like tomb raider right okay yeah. she never looks bad yeah are you fucking kidding me <laughs> people are shooting guns at you there's explosions you're riding sea dudes you don't look scared at all get the fuck out of here <laughs> so she's running uh she's running in different rooms there's dead bodies everywhere and they're in the closet love it this is your you know halloween house of horrors He's running after her naked, catches her. He like tries to bite her away. <laughs> it's so gross. And then he um he grabs a chainsaw. She kicks him in the face. Oh, though. she kicks him in the and face. He's like, not the face, you fucking bitch. <laughs> uh, he grabs a chainsaw. He's running down the hall, buck ass naked, with his dick in a sock. Did you know that? No. <laughs> he apparently likes standing on set with just his dick in a sock when they were filming that. And people were very uncomfortable by it. Oh, my God. Well, if you're going to cover a guy in blood and make him run down a hall, just let him do it. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, so she goes down these these circular stairs, and he's, like, he's aiming the chainsaw at her and, like, following her down and, like, timing it out and then drops it. And then you see her. Oh, his scream, too, like, reads over the banister. <sighs> Very Green Goblin. And so we see her at the bottom where he, like, impaled her with the chainsaw. And then it goes to the next scene. I was like, what is that, like a macaroni grill or something where he's like drawing yeah. on the tablecloth? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck's going on there, but it's he's, hilarious. So he's at dinner with Evelyn, and he's drawing a girl laying down. He's a very good artist. <laughs> it's not bad. I'm not, I'm not mad at it. With crayons. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things I think, so he starts breaking up with Evelyn at this point, and one of the cruelest but also most blunt and succinct things he says is, you're not terribly important to me. what's crazy about that is i love the the honesty but that is so like calculated to be like the cruelest thing you could say to somebody of that status 
And so she starts crying in the book. He's like, you don't even drink beer. And she's like, you don't even drink beer. And then so she orders a Corona to try and please him. It's a very weird scene, but Reese Witherspoon does a great job of this scene. She's so like pathetic, but she also brings an air of levity that's really needed at this point in the movie Mm -hmm. after you've seen like kind of this gauntlet of just darkness. He gets up. He's like, I'm just leaving. She's like, where are you going? I have to return some videotapes. (laughs) (laughs) And then so the next scene is, uh, this is where shit gets really crazy. Yes. Even crazier. So he's at at an ATM. There's a cat on the ground. He picks it up. And the ATM says, feed me the stray cat. (laughs) So he pulls out his gun like he's going to blow the cat's brain out. Get that fool. And an old lady was walking up and she's like, hey, and he shoots her and there's cops right there. So they chase him down an alleyway. He has a shootout with the cop cars, with the cops. Never reloads, mind you. Yeah. Well, he also blows up a car. And then looks at the gun like, how did that happen? Yeah. So weird. And then he gets to, so he gets to his, runs to his apartment, runs in, blasts the security guard, and then it starts running out, turns around and shoots the janitor. And then goes outside, and then he comes back in. Well, you're missing a crucial detail in that when he shoots the custodian, it's because he is leaving and then circles around again in the revolving door just to shoot him and then goes back out. (laughs) Fucking hilarious. So he shoots him. So he goes back outside, and then he comes back in, and it's like all reset. Yeah. And so he he goes into his coat like he's gonna pull out his gun and he pulls out a pen he's all wild-eyed and uh, looking crazy so he signs in he gets into his room there's a helicopter flying around and lights going over and this is where he makes a call to his lawyer he confesses all his murders all the people he's killed that he's eaten some of them and their brains he re- refers to a couple of things that are straight out of the book like there's the gay man who he killed with a sharpay that's from the book and yeah, it, it's interesting. Like I said earlier, you can hear him kind of lapse out of his accent, but I, I kind of like it because he's so desperate. He does refer to this uh, apartment he has in Hell's Kitchen, which is basically just like this Jeffrey Dahmer type apartment, which is gross. It's really good. Apparently, a lot of it was improvised. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's why he references the book because he goes completely off script because it's, you know, in his brain. The next morning, he wakes up and it's kind of a weird scene because you're you don't know like is somebody going to be waiting for him or is he just going about his routine and he's just going about his routine showering showers and then he puts on his mask and then he actually goes to alan's apartment and it's all painted over yep and he goes to the closet there's the realtors are showing the house to people and he kind of sneaks around and goes to the closet where the bodies were hanging before there's nothing there and so the realtor comes by and she's he wants to know what happened and she's kind of just weird about it. she says don't make any trouble here please don't come back because she's like oh yeah did you see the ad in the times and he's like yes of course and she goes there wasn't an no ad in the time you're done yeah so this kind of bugs me because they want to keep it vague but obviously there's something right I actually am a big fan of this scene because she's so suspicious of him you can't tell what's happened but clearly it was painted and was it painted just because they were selling it or was it painted because something happened here again going to like to what degrees because I think that's it people have an overly simplistic view of this movie where it's like either he's a complete murderer or he's completely innocent and just crazy and it's like there it's a gradient man like there's so many things he could have done he could have just sat in that room and jerked off a bunch of times it doesn't even matter you know think about it maybe it's that it was Paul Allen's and because Paul Allen has a bunch of money that she's just being like weird like don't yeah 
could be that simple because Paul Allen's alive and that, he's right. the real He's in London. For all you know. <laughs> he goes outside and he's freaking out. He calls his secretary from the payphone. He's like popping pills like a crazy person. Right. She's going through his drawers and finds a planner with uh, a bunch of women's names like in the dates and then some kind of some there's some drawings at that point the weird drawings don't really come until the next time we come back to it but oh yeah but um she's also invading his personal property which i mean you kind of get what you pay for that's all i'm saying if anybody wants to go on my hard drive i'm just saying that you don't have my permission so the fact that you went in there you get what you pay for so he's freaking out on the phone though and he's like getting hot takes off his coat but then he shows up to lunch with all of his other all the guys right and he sees his lawyer there and he goes and asks him about the message that he left. His lawyer is like, oh, yeah, it's a great joke. This is where I thought like, OK, Patrick Bateman is not Patrick Bateman. Yeah, exactly. And then we find out that the lawyer had dinner with uh, Paul Allen in London 10 days ago. So we know that that didn't happen. And Bateman's kind of like freaking. I was like, no, I killed a bunch of people. And the lawyer's like, ah, oh, yeah, okay, fuck off now. Yeah, they, they, he say, you know, basically, it stopped being funny. Like, this is concerning now. Yeah. Uh, and it, it goes back to the secretary going through the planner, and then this is where all the fucked up drawings are. Like, like crazy shit, I don't even know. The vagina being sewed up, yeah, it's not good. And then uh, Bateman goes back and sits down with his friends. Reagan's on TV talking about Iran-Contra. And uh, the book ends very similarly with Reagan on TV and you have Bryce asking him, like, what do you think about him? And basically, like, the implication is that, like, oh, he, he like Reagan's much more dangerous than he lets on. And that's what ends up here, where uh, if you look at the door behind him, there's a sign on it that says this is not an exit. And that's the famous like last line of the book. Uh, they add an extra little blurb here, which I think it makes sense because they've added that stream of consciousness narrative throughout. So if I may, there are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp and I do not hope for a better world anymore. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others i want no one to escape but even after admitting this there is no catharsis my punishment continues to elude me and i gain no deeper knowledge of myself no new knowledge can be extracted from my telling this confession has meant nothing it's it's exactly right even that blurb means absolutely nothing. Yeah, I was going to say. Like, it it's is, a lot of word salad. Yeah, exactly. It's just verbose for the sake of being verbose. And I think that's like the last punchline of the whole movie is like it, it exactly proves itself. Very good. So uh, what would you give this movie? Oh, I definitely put it in the classics category. I know it's a bit long. It's a little bit self-indulgent. It's kind of pandering and whatnot and i think that you have to look at the cultural impact and people looking at it and kind of becoming revering it for the wrong reasons but even taking those things aside it is so well acted the scenes are so well constructed the acting is great the set design is great the costuming is great it feels like it's the 80s even like the the, the lighting in these scenes it just reminds me of that time period so even if you don't like the substance, and I could totally see how it's not palatable, because even to me, there are parts where it's questionable, and I really am against you know violence against women and blah, blah, blah. Even if all that is, it's still so well executed, you have to give it the credit. Even though there's no, you know, like you're talking gore and stuff, you're not seeing actual on-screen death, but it's still, it's horrifying, it's unnerving. Absolutely. Classic. 
Yeah. Is it the best classic? No. No. I think The Fly is way better than this, but I would still watch both gladly. I mean, I've seen them both multiple times, so I'm good with it. Yeah. So I give it a classic too. It's, it's well, that was easy. Yeah. Perfect. So I'd like to plug before we go that we have The Slammers, which is an ongoing series where we pit horror icons that we've made in the classic WWF No Mercy game on Nintendo 64 in a tournament against each other. Uh, we're doing that every week leading up to WrestleMania. At the end, we're going to be doing a pay-per-view, which is a long stream format, which is going to be probably just on YouTube at this point, where we're just going to entertain ourselves with a pay-per-view style event called slasher mania which you don't actually have to pay for so it's it's no pay all of you it's fpv yeah free preview free preview i love that and yeah you can always reach out to us online slasherspot at gmail.com for those of you who've rated reviewed subscribed i thank you i would love to be able to put ourselves and say at the end of every episode we're gonna read a lovely review at the end and be like oh billy from nantucket says that jake's the phoniest person and also his singing is great and he should never stop Uh, but we don't have enough reviews to where i can do that effectively i'd run out in like a (laughs) week so that's what's going on there we have a Patreon. If you like to support us, support us. If you don't, don't. But just by listening, you're supporting in your own weird way. So thank you for that. Jim, do you have anything to say to these f- f- goons? Uh, beep, beep, fuck boys. For Jim, for Brian, for everybody, I'll remind you to go out there and do something you love. And remember that all work and no power play makes Jack a dull boy. <laughs>